0: I think this atmosphere, we all are, like, motivating each other to vote and care about voting, whether, like, we're political people or not, because I'm not the most political person at all, but I know how important it is to vote.
1: That's Josh Friesen, a freshman at Syracuse University. He just voted in his very first presidential election. And he says voting is definitely the talk of his dorm these days.
0: Everyone's, like, checking their mail. Is my ballot here yet? Is my ballot here yet? Stuff like that. They have... A bucket like where we get our packages that says, "Mail in ballots, get out ASAP." So like, they're the school is very on top of like getting out our ballots, making sure that we all get to vote. Stuff like that. It's just, it's great to like finally get to vote and all of that stuff. It's all of our first times to vote because it's a freshman dorm, so we're all pretty excited to get our vote, our votes in. Even though it's a lot different this year, I mean, I feel like it actually makes it kind of better because it's more of like a community thing, like. It's all mail-in this year for for most of us, you know. It it feels a lot more fun than I'd assume normal voting would be.
1: Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter at EdSurge. This week, we continue our semester-long series taking you inside college life during the pandemic. We're hearing audio diaries from professors and students on six campuses. If you haven't heard the previous installments, please check those out on this podcast feed. I'm going to start with a prediction. I think the turnout of college students is going to be higher than it has ever been in American history, and higher than a lot of people guessed. That's partly because of students like Josh, who, as he said, was not much interested in politics until recently, but now is all about voting. It used to be hard for college students to figure out this absentee ballot system. After all, many students are away from their hometowns on Election Day. But this year, there's this energy and information about the process. And urgency. You'll hear for yourself in this episode. And we'll look at how professors are dealing with the elephant in the room. Are they bringing up politics in class during this polarized time? Also this episode, we'll be hearing plenty of other updates from the folks we've been following including answers to questions raised in the last episode. As you remember, more than 10,000 people at Purdue signed a petition asking for a single day off because they're burned out. Did they get the administration to cave in? And how did Halloween go? The moon was very full. It was a blue moon on Halloween. And the holiday fell on a Saturday night. Did students go out partying? And could that be a setback for keeping the virus in check? But first, back to the presidential election, which frankly is about all I can think about these days, and which is consuming the country. At Texas State University, students have also been encouraging each other to get to the polls, one way or another.
2: In my online courses um, through Zoom, students have actually been talking in the Zoom chats about um, where they can vote early and what hours the polling locations are open. Um, And I've got to brag on Texas State students for a second, because our county, Hayes County, in central Texas, became the first county in the entire nation to surpass the total 2016 voter turnout. So we have some really awesome and politically engaged students.
1: So just to make sure that's clear, in this college town where Texas State is located... More people had voted before Election Day this year than voted in that county in the 2016 presidential election. Of course, just because college students are voting doesn't necessarily mean they're voting for the same candidate. Natalie Ricciardi, a junior at Chapman University, says seeing the political views of her friends and contacts on social media has been stressful.
3: I can't even tell you how many of my own friends that I've had to mute because I just can't Take seeing one more thing that is so hateful. I have some of my closest friends posting just awful things saying, you know, if you don't believe the way I do, and then followed by a lot of expletives. And honestly, it feels like nobody wants to have a conversation and everybody just wants to come at each other and fight. And I've really had to decide to remove myself from that environment because. I'm already glued to my laptop all day. So when I go on social media, I'm not trying to go on to induce more stress. It's more of an escape for me. So when I see all of that stuff and people just being so awful towards each other, I can't take it. I'm just hoping that after the election, things are going to calm down. But honestly, I, I don't really
1: know if they are. In normal times, the college classroom would be a place to have debates about politics and political issues without all the emotion and name calling. But when classrooms are online, it can be harder for students to engage with each other in a civilized discussion than when things were in person. That's definitely been the experience for Jeremy Suri, a professor of public affairs and history at the University of
4: Texas at Austin and it is very different um because uh, even when i have taught uh, online in the past or used video conferencing in the past generally the students and colleagues are people i've spent a lot of time working with in the same room and now especially with students i have graduate students as well as undergraduates who are in my class week after week in my video class in my zoom class but i've never actually been in the same room with them. i don't know how tall they are <laughs> you know I, I don't know you know whether they wear sneakers or shoes or tivas i don't <laughs> (laughs) I don't know these things about them.
1: I love that he seems to attach so much weight to whether a student is wearing Tevas or sneakers. It makes me wonder about my footwear back when I was a student and what professors thought of it. Of course, the shoes people wear can give you a tiny bit of information about who they are. Maybe this professor's always had very little to go on, but now he has even less
4: and that informality, that tactile um, connection that we take for granted, um, that makes it harder when we're talking about these issues because we are attuned as educators and as citizens really to pay attention to body language and we're getting a very truncated version of it, sometimes a distorted version. Someone can look like they are comfortable with something when they're not, when all you're seeing is their face or vice versa. Sometimes uh, an individual's facial expressions alone can actually distort how they're reacting to something. So that, that is one of the real challenges in having these conversations.
1: I called up Professor Suri because I saw him quoted in a recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education about how best to prepare students for the election. He feels strongly that professors should be addressing these political issues head on.
4: I don't think we have a choice because I think these issues are with us. And one of our most important roles as educators is to talk about the elephants in the room. You cannot educate someone. You cannot educate a group of people. You cannot conduct a serious conversation if people are thinking about something and you pretend it's not there. It's our job to take what people are thinking about and situate it within a body of scholarship and factual analysis that still allows for interpretive differences. So again, we can have many different uh, points of view, but they have to be anchored in scholarly standards of evidence and fact. Something that might have seemed... um
1: to go without saying f- four years ago or three and a half years ago whatever, right? I mean, are you, so th- we're, in a, we're in a unique climate. Is there any way you could describe or how you characterize the climate?
4: Yes, I think we're in, a, we're in an environment where people are hearing opinions all the time that are not anchored in fact. And to give our undergraduates credit, it's very confusing. When you hear about a range of issues and you don't know who is fact-based and who is not. And, and quite frankly, I think that people who are trying to fool us for all kinds of reasons take advantage of that. And they can state things strongly. They can even have the veneer effect. Uh, but they don't really. And, and one of our most important jobs, it's always been our job as scholars, but it's even more important now in this environment is to teach our students how to get beyond the rhetoric to know what fact base there is behind it, to assess critically the information, and for us to create a culture of that. I think it's very important that we model that behavior ourselves. I'm very careful now not even to spout off opinions on sports unless I have some factual basis behind that, Or to differentiate that, you know, I'll say, I'm a diehard Packers fan, and no matter what Aaron Rodgers does, I'm going to say he's the best quarterback, but that is not a scholarly opinion, (laughs) right? I'm going to differentiate that from a true analysis of Packers football.
1: Of course, as he says, teaching students to separate fact from opinion has always been the job of professors. And that job is ever more important in our current political environment. But it's also ever more challenging when the times we're living through are so volatile and the emotions that students feel about the world are running so high. And this is not just an abstract topic
4: for this professor.
1: He's had some heated discussions in his Zoom classes this semester.
4: So the, the best example I could give you is actually from my graduate seminar. I have 18 PhD and master's students from history, political science, uh, the LBJ school, uh, and a few area studies pros, all together in a course on uh, strategy and foreign policy. Um, And um, we were in a discussion, even though the course is on strategy and foreign policy, we got into a discussion about race and policing. And I have some activists in the course uh, who are uh, for uh, major reforms of the police and then i have some uh, individuals who might not even be on the right politically but nonetheless they're deep believers in in a traditional law and order position that we need we need a strong police force and and that very quickly became a very emotional argument because these are individuals who who um have thought about these issues but have also been out there as activists on one side or the other and they have you know they have personal relationships too people who have been injured by the police or police officers who themselves have been been injured. And I think it was very important uh, in that context not to try to muzzle the emotion, but to set up but to, to to frame it in terms of how the same set of experiences can be felt differently and experienced differently by different people. And to remind the students that we are historical actors in a historical narrative that's unfolding right now. And that to have these very strong different feelings and be truthful about them doesn't mean we have to invalidate others. And that actually our goal uh, is to try to find where there is some overlap, if there's some overlap, or at least understand civilly how to disagree around these issues. And I think the debate, I don't know if anyone was convinced on one side or the other, but I think what it did is it set at least a framework for how to talk about these these issues. It became a more fact-based discussion and no name-calling and things of that sort, which, which these arguments can often um, devolve into.
1: Okay, so that's a professor who teaches history and policy issues. What about a course that isn't overtly about politics. Sabina Brunswicker is a professor of digital innovation at Purdue University. And this semester, she's teaching an introductory course on innovation that has a unit on sustainability. And she says today's political climate has her worried about things she never thought twice about before.
5: Now, I typically don't worry so much about it, but I also, in my class, at some point, I, you know, there's climate change, etc. And actually, I play a video at some point from... Al Gore, right? And he has a very short video; it's easy to digest. That talks about you know climate change and the impact, and you know the the, the importance of renewable energy. And the
6: sky is a very thin shell of atmosphere surrounding the planet.
5: And and now it's like, hmm, yeah. I was like, should I have played at that? Maybe it wasn't a good decision because I want to be kind of very neutral. At the same time, these are facts. Climate change is there, right? And and then so it's like it make me think you know, how I act now in this kind of political situation. If I give examples, you know, I want to be as neutral as possible.
1: She notes that she did play that Al Gore clip this semester. And no student complained, but she may find something different in the future just to be safe. Of course, there are professors who are quite open about their political views. And that may not always work well for students in this time of hastily created online courses. At least that's how Natalie, the student at Chapman University, sees it.
3: It mostly has been happening in sociology, which, you know, it it makes sense to a point, right? Because sociology is the study of human interaction within society, both on a small scale and a large scale. So this is a hot topic for sociologists right now. But the professor has 100% weaved their own political agenda into it. A lot of my Journals and discussion board assignments have been uh, about topics including riots, uh, political reform, different things like that. And what's interesting about this is this is the class where we never meet synchronously. We have one recorded Zoom video per week, and you can just watch it whenever, So it's interesting to see politics being woven in where we're not even really talking to each other in person, but people are still pushing their agendas out there.
1: As you may remember from our last episode, Natalie was the student who talked about getting sick with what she thought at first was COVID. But it was a false alarm, and she's feeling great now.
3: Perhaps it was just a small virus, and I'm completely better now, and tested negative on two different occasions— But that was a whole ordeal.
1: Her campus, Chapman University, started the fall completely online. But then in October, the university reopened campus to some in-person teaching. Then, as you may have read in the news, wildfires hit Southern California. And two large ones ended up raging in the area.
3: And Chapman's campus closed down again. We were told, you know, don't go outside, stay in your house. I mean, that's not really much of a challenge at this point because of COVID, but it was just
1: a lot. It's just one of the ways in which the current events that she's living through aren't just abstract topics for a class discussion. So again, students like Natalie aren't just thinking about these issues and voting about these issues. They're in a near constant state of emergency about these issues layers of emergencies on top of each other. But back to how politics are playing out on campus. David Peña Guzman is feeling very far away from all the political unrest in the US these days. He's a professor at San Francisco State, but since everything there is online this semester, he's teaching remotely from Paris, where his partner lives.
6: Typically, I would be involved in the protests, in grassroots organizing, and uh, from Paris, I have not been able to do any of that. And so I've been feeling very much like a spectator watching from the sidelines, and it's an odd feeling uh, to experience. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that it, it does have an element of shame, uh, a very subtle shame of not having been there, not having been a part of this very important mobilization against fascism in, in our country. But it's also been internalized as a little bit of a, of, of a feeling of guilt, uh, where I just internally feel guilty about not being there and about being on the other side of the Atlantic watching from, from afar
1: one of the students we have been following is feeling left out as well. Lu Zelena Anaya-Chong, a senior at Texas State, isn't able to vote in this election because of her residency status. And she's been surprised by how that's made her feel. It's kind of, like, I feel like... um bad about it but like you just feel like ashamed that you're not able to participate in this type of stuff so uh i go i'll be walking through campus and everybody's like have are you registered to vote have you voted yet uh or like all my friends are like sending a message like go vote uh blah, 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 like exercise your ride whatever whatever um like it's just like it makes you feel good like you're not fulfilling that um duty that you have as not a citizen because I'm not, but just like, you know, it's like so like um resident of the United States. So um I think on my end, that is kinda rough. The innovation professor from Purdue who played that Al Gore clip, she can't vote either. Because she's from Germany and in the US on a green card. She's increasingly aware of how the rest of the world views the political situation here but also how the academic world views the changing role of the U.S. in terms of scientific research and influence.
5: I do have strong ties with my home country, um, or I would say with Europe in general. And the impact for me is that I have get looked at from my friends and families in Europe that look at me and ask me how I can be, how I can live and work in such a country. Um... Even though I try to explain them that you know um we as scientists are scientists or um we are not working for a certain state or for a certain corporation but follow the principle of science um but that is um you know it becomes increasingly difficult to um, to communicate that at the same time also seeing that the external view, the the way the world views the United States, has changed so much. Uh, when I was moving to the United States, uh, people were looking up, looking at the United States as a leading state, as a leading country that sets example. Also, in academia, it's considered as a country that leads the field, where you have the best universities, the best environments, performing. High-impact research that is transformative, from driving change. And now, when you see the the ratings, how citizens in countries like France, like Germany, etc., look at the United States. Only twenty percent, about I think twenty or thirty percent, are still thinking of the United States as a leading country, uh, as a leading nation, and. Yeah, that has a direct impact on me. By the way, that poll she cited
1: about how Europeans see the U.S. was conducted by the Pew Research Center. It found that 70% of Germans polled had an unfavorable opinion of the U.S. and found similar failing views of U.S. leadership across Europe. Somehow, this election will eventually end. We might not know the results by the end of this election day, but no matter which way things go, the outcome will have a huge impact that will be felt on campuses
4: all over America. Regardless of what happens in this election, there are going to be people who are upset.
1: That's Jeremy Suri, the history professor at UT Austin that we heard from earlier.
4: Regardless of what happens in this election, there are going to be people who feel that they were not treated fairly. Regardless of what happens in this election, there's going to be a lot of nasty stuff said on social media that our students and maybe even some of our faculty and staff are going to be retweeting and sending around. We can't pretend that doesn't exist. We have to use this as an opportunity to open a discussion and not simply a discussion of who won and who lost. That might be itself an important and complex discussion, but more how do those who feel they've been mistreated... How can we bring them back into the process? How can we make sure their voices are heard? That doesn't mean accepting everyone's position, but it means finding a way in which we can have a conversation and move forward together, not with everyone getting everything they want, but everyone feeling part of the process. That's, that, that's how democracy works, right? Democracy works by all of us feeling we're part of the process, and if we don't win today, we get something, and we have a chance to win tomorrow.
1: <laughs> it's probably hard for a lot of students. Voting in their first presidential election at such a dramatic moment in history to imagine feeling okay if they don't get the result they want. But Professor Suri says his discipline of history offers some
4: solace. Uh, oftentimes, we can end up talking about these issues as if we're doing this for the first time. And as if uh, not just the world is ending, but that we're in some space where there's nothing we can learn, so we might as well just yell at each other. You know, the, the nihilism that we hear is often historical ignorance. And what I want to get across to people, I think it's our obligation, is that we've been through difficult moments before. They've been different from these, but those moments influence where we are today and they give us purchase on thinking about things we can do that even in these dark moments can be productive for other periods. If there's one uh, repeated cycle of history, you know, it's the cycle of dark and light following one another. It's not that we get a complete reversal, but these moments of difficulty are also pregnant with possibilities for doing new things, and that's where the past helps us to see alternatives for moving forward.
1: So I think everyone can agree This election season has been stressful. And various people I talked to have been trying to take breaks. There was the Purdue University student petition that we talked about, asking for a day off. And as we said, more than 10,000 people signed on. And soon after our last episode ran, the Purdue University Senate approved the idea. Though they made it optional. So it's up to each professor to decide whether or not they'll actually honor it. That was welcome news to Joseph Ching a junior at Purdue who we've been hearing from all semester on this podcast.
6: And I'm really happy that the university has elected to have the optional reading day, the day after election day to just give people some sort of a breather.
1: And one professor we heard from last episode talking about how burned out she was also got a break.
2: <laughs> it took it took a vacation. For 70 hours, almost three full days.
1: That's Rachel Davenport, a senior lecturer at Texas State.
2: It's the first day off I've had since January. And when I say that, I mean I literally have worked weekends, too, since January. I haven't had one single day that I didn't at least do a few hours of work. So 10 months, something like 300 days without a single day off, and I took three days, I drove out of the state and I just went and played in the woods. <laughs> I um you know, I told my students and colleagues and everyone knew, okay, like to expect. And I, I set an auto reply on my email. <laughs> so I just, I was so burnt out. I don't know if I've recovered yet, Um, but I... I was barely hanging on, and um, it feels shameful to feel like I needed a break or or to admit even taking one because I know not everyone can. I'm not even sure I really could, But, um, but I needed to do something.
1: She shared in her audio diary that moment we all dread, I think, when we get back from time away from our email.
2: Here we go. How many emails do I have? Oh, only 36. Well, that's not too bad. Maybe because I told everyone that I was going to be gone. And honestly, I'm looking through and maybe 10 of them don't need replies. So maybe only 26 emails. Well, all right. Maybe it was okay that I took a break. I am behind on many, many other things. (sighs) But maybe starting now, I can approach them with much more energy (laughs) than I
1: previously had. Meanwhile, another holiday just happened which could have an impact on campuses.
0: Well, today, as I'm recording this, it's Halloween. And yeah, so it's like, it's college. We've been having like a weekend. We started on Thursday. Some people started on like Wednesday doing stuff.
1: That's Josh Friesen, the Syracuse freshman that we heard from at the very start of the episode.
0: So far, at least like me and all the people I hang out with, we've all just been doing stuff in the dorms, being pretty responsible, especially since earlier this week, there was a spike in cases on campus. You know, with Halloween weekend coming up now, everyone's going to probably go out tonight. I know me and all the people that I'm friends with are staying in because if if we hadn't planned on it before, which we did, like this spike of cases definitely urged some people to stay in because we all do want to stay here. We're having such a blast, even with all of these like restrictions and stuff. We really, we really do want to stay
1: campus officials sent an email to the Syracuse community on Friday saying they were aware of some large gatherings that occurred on Thursday and were reviewing social media posts and videos to identify students and possibly discipline some of those involved. The state guidelines in New York say that colleges that report 100 or more positive cases in a fixed two-week period have to pause in-person teaching and curtail on-campus activities for two weeks. As of Sunday, The Syracuse Student Paper reported the university has tallied 43 cases. But the mood on campus in the last couple of weeks has been a bit muted because of two tragedies that aren't related to COVID. Of course, there have been tragedies on college campuses every year, on every college campus, going back generations. Alcohol-related deaths, suicides, accidents, and so on. But maybe this year, because we're also focused on COVID, these other tragedies seem even more profound. On October 13th, Syracuse freshman Trevor Pierce was hit by a trolley near campus while he was skateboarding, and he died. Josh had gotten to know him from the Ultimate Frisbee team.
0: Yeah, he's such a good person, and he did not deserve this in the slightest. He had such a bright future, such a nice person, made everybody feel so happy, very funny, just a great kid all around. And it's it's tragic. It's definitely brought me and the ultimate Frisbee team closer together, but we didn't want it to take something like this to bring us all closer together. It's really unfortunate. And yeah, it's it's just been rough for me. For like the next half week I cried every shower I took. It was just Yeah, it was it's rough. There was a memorial at the the site of the accident and I I went there, and I just sat down right in front, talked to Trevor for like fifteen minutes, said everything I'd want him to know, and I felt a lot more at peace about that.
1: Then the next day after the accident, another tragedy hit.
0: The night after Trevor's death, we were like, I was trying to get my mind off things, I was just hanging out with my friends, and the RA's come by and they're like, "You all need to like go back into your rooms." Like, what? The, what's going on? And all these ambulances just pull up, cops pull up, Department of Public Safety pulls up. We're all, like, watching out of our window, like, what's happening or whatever.
1: A student was on the floor in his dorm, not waking up.
0: He was lying on the floor of his best friend's room, and his best friend tried to wake him up, couldn't, and was running down the hall yelling. He won't wake up. Somebody call someone. And, yeah... yeah. So we all had to, like, stay in our rooms. I did not go into my room. I went to my friend's room because we all just, like, wanted to be with each other. We did not know what was happening, especially so soon after losing one person in our grade. Well, we didn't at first know who this person that wouldn't wake up was. But then people found out.
1: The student was Jack London.
0: And my girlfriend texted me. She started freaking out because... She was, very, she was pretty close with Jack, and so she was just really freaking out about, like, what was happening? Is he okay? Was he not? Meanwhile, the ambulances are like, they've already been here for, like, an hour at this point. The stretcher came in once, came out empty, like, they didn't take him out. They were just, they were just trying to trying to do stuff, and about an hour and a half after they came, they all left and then we see as the coroner's truck pulls up in front of our hall. And we watch as the stretcher comes in. And about 10 minutes later, the stretcher comes out, body covered. At that point, we knew that we lost another one. To lose two people, one that I'm so close to and one that someone I care so much about is so close to, in a two-day span. Yeah, it was just rough. that, That weekend, everyone was just, the entire school was just down.
1: We are in week 11 of this pandemic semester on these campuses, and it's just layer upon layer of stress and hardship. Next episode, we'll look for some lessons from this pandemic semester. And what are some good ideas that might last even beyond this challenging time this has been the Ed Surge podcast if you like the show please take a minute to give us a rating and a review that helps other people find us or share the Ed Surge podcast on social media or tell a friend as you're having a civilized political discussion on a campus, or wherever you're at. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter, at young. Editing this episode by Rob McGinley Myers. Thanks also to Sasha Aslanian. And thanks to the students and professors who are taking the time to send in their diaries and share their experiences this semester. Rachel Davenport, Deb Nichols, Sabina Brunsucker, David Peña Guzman, Peter Sands, Luz Elena and Aya Chang, Joseph Ching, Marjorie Blenn, Adrian Davis, Natalie Ricciardi, and Josh Friesen. This podcast series is supported by a reporting fellowship from the Education Writers Association. Music by Ruvell and Blue Dot Sessions. A thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, managing editor of EdSurge. We'll be back with a regular episode next week, and in two weeks with the next pandemic campus diaries. Thanks for listening and be well.